Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I'll begin reading in a moment, but let me ask you, have you ever, have you ever fallen asleep in an inappropriate place? I see a few honest hands, the rest of you are like, I'm not confessing anything in church today. You ever fallen asleep in school? I've done that. What's the worst part about falling asleep in school? Well, the teacher wakes you up. That's, that's a bad thing. The worst part is there's this puddle of drool on your desk. And, and when that happens, you're thinking, I didn't know I was asleep for that long. But, like, you know, class has changed. There's other people in the room you don't recognize. You've been asleep a little too long. Have you ever fallen asleep at work? That could be a scary thing if you're like, you know, a flight traffic controller or something like that. You ever fall asleep in church? Is anybody near you asleep right now? All right, if they're under like three, that's okay, all right? Some of my staff is already raising their hand. They just sat down. They're already asleep. They're nodding off. I remember uh, as a youth pastor, we had a lock-in, and for some reason we planned it on Saturday night. And we thought we were actually going to get some sleep, which we don't even try that anymore. But I remember sitting in church, and the bad thing, I was like on the second row. And just, you know, just feel your head do this. And, you know, it's just torture almost. What we're going to look at this morning, in fact, the title of the message is, Wake Up, is that Jesus addresses these churches in Revelation that one of them in particular was asleep. And really, the other two that we're going to look at, we're going to look at three this morning, had a similar problem. Things were going on in the church that nobody, apparently, was doing anything about. Stuff was going on that was wrong, that was sinful, uh, errant teaching and that kind of thing, and apparently they just let it happen. So we're going to look at three churches in case you're following along. Some folks are here regularly on Sunday. For those of you that are thinking, so are you? did you preach on Revelation last week? Yes. And next week? Yeah. We're in the middle of the seven churches, and I took one week on the church at Ephesus, and then last week... We looked at the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, which are actually the second and sixth church, because they really were doing pretty good. In fact, they were the two churches there wasn't a strong rebuke against. We're going to spend one week next week on the church at Laodicea, and obviously if you'd like to follow along in future weeks when you're not here, you can do that on iTunes. Just go to Garden City Chapel and follow along with us. But this morning we're looking at three churches that kind of fall in the middle, one, Jesus is going to use kind of the same formula. I know your deeds. Here's what I see you doing. And he commends them on a few things. And then he says, but here's what I got against you. And these churches, he had something against them. In fact, I'm going to read these individually. And one of the churches, you're going to have a hard time figuring out if there was anything to be commended in that church. Let me read just about the first church. Start with that one. And then make some application as we get to all the churches. Keep in mind, this is John on the island of Patmos. He's been banished to this prison island. He's had this vision. An angel has spoke to him. He's seen Jesus walking in the middle of seven lampstands, which those are the churches. And he dictates letters to the angel or the messenger of the church. And here's what he says, first of all, to the church at Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's just stop there for a minute and talk about the church at Pergamum. The church, in fact, the word Pergamum meant tower or castle. It's interesting to kind of get the geography of these churches. This particular church was fortified, or the city that it was in was fortified, was up on a hill, had a fortified wall around it. And Jesus says to them, the one, he describes himself, and he describes himself a little differently to each church. But this one, I have the sharp, two-edged sword. What's he talking about? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And what's it able to do? It's able to pierce to the division of joint and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so you're going to see that again when he starts talking about what he's going to do with this sword. It's the word of God. And the word of God at times can bring comfort, right? If you're a child of God, there's times that opening up scripture comforts your heart with God's presence. But in the case of this church, the word of God was going to bring stinging rebuke. In fact, you'll see the warning as we get to it. But he commends them. You you live in the place of Satan's throne. If you study the book of Revelation and you start reading commentaries, you can read like every commentary has a different opinion on what some things mean, like Satan's throne. What what does it mean? Well, one of the things I learned about the, the city of Pergamum is all of these cities had incredible temples to these foreign gods whether it was diana or uh, in this case it was a god whose symbol was the snake and in the temple huge temple were all these non-poisonous snakes but people would travel from all over to lay among the snakes and they thought if a snake slithered over them it would heal them so if they were sick they would come and allow this snake well for a christian when you see the symbol of a snake what do you think You think about Satan. And so what Jesus is saying to this church is, you know the temple over there that have all those snakes in it? It's demonic. They're not being healed by God. They're just having snakes slither over them, and they think that's going to make them well. That don't work. So he says, I know where you dwell. And the word dwell means you're not just passing through. This is where you've had to take up residence. And Jesus says, it has not escaped my notice. Let me stop there. Have you ever felt like you were in a place where God's forgotten you. Maybe the circumstances that you find yourself in, you think, this can't be where God wanted me to be. And yet, these people in Pergamon could have thought the same thought. We're in a city overrun by all of these gods that people are worshiping. They're not worshiping the true God. And God's saying, I haven't forgot you. I know where you are. In fact, I expect you to be faithful there. So he says, I know where you dwell. You dwell in a place where Satan has established a throne. And I'm commending you on the fact that you hold fast 
to my name. You have not denied my faith. Literally, you've kept a grip on the faith in God that you started with. In fact, he commends them even in the days of Antipas. Apparently, one of the leaders of this first church, this church at Pergamum in the first century, Antipas had been put together, put together, had been put to death by the emperor Domitian. And so Jesus is saying, I saw that. I know that's happened. And even in the midst of that kind of persecution, you've held fast to your confession of faith. So I commend you for that. Then he goes to Thyatira. This is the longest letter to the church that really is in the most insignificant town. It's the smallest of the seven towns that he writes to, and yet it's the longest letter. Let me read that. We'll look at the commendations, and then ultimately when we've got all three of them on the table, then we're going to look at the rebuke. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you, have, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As also I have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does he say to Thyatira? There's some, some good things. I know your deeds. Four things. I know your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance. And can I say that really that's what comes out of love and faith is service and perseverance. If you try to do the service and perseverance without knowing Jesus, and you really don't have love and faith, the other th stuff's going to be dry as dust trying to accomplish that. So he says some good things to them. In fact, he says... The deeds of late are greater than the deeds at first. In other words, some of the things you're doing, you're getting better at. But I've got this against you. And let's get the other church out on the table. This is the church at Sardis. I want you to listen carefully. See if you can find any commendation in this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have, not, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments 
And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me tell you about Sardis. Sardis was a town on a very high hill. Sardis was a town that thought we are protected because of the height of our city. And so they just didn't really pay attention. They thought no enemy can attack us. The only problem is by this time they had already been overrun by two different conquering armies. Because they weren't watchful. They were asleep as a city, much less as a church. And the closest thing you find to commendation is after Jesus says what he has against him, he says, there are some of you, small number, who haven't soiled their garments. In the first two churches, it appears that there's a greater majority who aren't doing anything wrong. The problem is they weren't stopping the ones that were doing something wrong from doing the stuff that was wrong. But in the last church, apparently the majority of the church had just gone to sleep. And he says, you need to wake up. And there's just really a handful. There's kind of a remnant that haven't soiled their garments. Sardis was one of the few churches out of the seven churches. Most of these churches lived in towns. They all lived in town under Roman rule. And what we've already looked at in the other three churches that we've looked at is they were these churches were incredibly persecuted by the Romans. But what made it worse was some of the Jews in that area had made a pact with Rome. And so they were basically turning in and egging on the Roman government to persecute these churches and to literally make the people destitute. They were poor for the most part. But the church at Sardis, they weren't a threat to anybody. Satan wasn't upset with them. Why? Because they're asleep. Roman government, the Jewish religion wasn't upset with them because they weren't doing anything. They were asleep at the wheel, so to speak. So those are the words of commendation. Let's go back now and look at the word of rebuke. In the first church, two things that he says to them. First, you keep holding the teaching of Balaam. You, what he was teaching Balak. He was putting a stumbling block before Israel. If you want to make a little note, write, write just the, the passage in Numbers chapter 22. Balaam was a prophet of God, supposedly, and yet he'd become a prophet for hire. Balak was the king of Moab, and Balaam wanted Balak to help him put a stumbling block in front of Israel. And it's interesting, the two things that you see in both these churches were also true back in Numbers. He wanted them to eat things that were sacrificed to idols, and he wanted them to commit sexual immorality. And if you read the story, I don't know if you find humor in Scripture, this is a funny story. If you know the story of Balaam and Balak, Balaam's on his donkey. And he's riding and, and he becomes blinded. He can't see. And his donkey sees something that Balaam can't see. And so the donkey starts pressing up against the wall and pinches Balaam's foot up against the wall. And Balaam starts beating the donkey and egging him on. You've got to keep going. You know, he's kicking and trying to prod him toward this thing that's scaring the donkey to death. But Balaam can't see it. So he hits him again. Finally hits him for the third time. And the donkey just kind of collapses and then starts speaking. And says, hey, what are you doing? Have I ever led you astray before? You know, now that would be a wake-up call, wouldn't it? If you're riding a donkey and it starts talking to you, would you quit beating me for crying out loud? And finally his eyes are open and he sees what was there was this angel that was scaring the donkey to death. But Balaam couldn't see it. Finally Balaam confesses and says, hey, I won't go. If you don't want me going that way, I won't go that way. 
Daniel says to him, no, you do go that way, but speak only what God tells you to speak. Quit being a prophet for hire, a false prophet. Speak the words of God. Check it out, whole story. In Numbers 22 and following. So what's he saying? Listen, there's people in your church that are still following that kind of teaching. So what were they saying? They were eating things sacrificed to idols. What would that look like? Well, in that city, there were all these false gods. So people would take meat and burn it and sacrifice it to an idol. And then once the sacrifice was over, they would celebrate by eating this meat that had been sacrificed to the idol. They would also commit sexual immorality and often in the, in the name of religion. He said, you also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. And scholars believe this goes back to Acts, that one of the very first disciples in the book of Acts, either he became a heretic or his followers became a heretic. But in both cases, there's a problem. The problem is this. A few people in the church were following this teaching of Balaam. A few people in the church were following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And in both cases, the rest of the people in the church were just letting it happen. How do we apply that to today? Well, what does Matthew 18 say? Matthew 18 calls for discipline. If there's somebody in your midst that is committing sin, what do you do? Well, we just bring it up in prayer meeting and pray for them. Now, that's called gossip. <laughs> we don't talk about them. We go to them and we say, hey, what are you doing? What you're doing is, is against God's law. You're, you're committing a sin. So these people have been led astray. And they were just letting things happen. Matthew 18 says, go to that person. Listen, if that doesn't work, then take somebody with you and confront the person. Why? Because we want to restore them. We want them to repent of their deeds that were wrong and restore them. And then what's the third step if they still won't repent? You treat them like a tax collector and a heathen. You cast them out of the church. There's somebody that needs Jesus, but they don't have him, so don't let them run the church. And folks, that was happening in the first century. Unfortunately, it's happening even today. And we've got to be careful. We can apply the principles we learn from what Jesus is speaking to these churches Listen, if you're in one of those kind of churches and you're just kind of sitting back, you're basically approving of things that are wrong. We'll talk more about application of that in a minute. The other church then, or the second church, the church at Thyatira, had this false prophet, this prophetess named Jezebel. In fact, basically Jezebel had become a proverbial saying for uh, a false teacher. Jezebel is a story from the Old Testament. He's basically saying, I'm giving the name to this woman that you've allowed in your church to teach you. And what was she teaching them? Eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. And here's what kind of the philosophy was of that day. The philosophy of, that, of a lot of folks in the first century church, in fact, Paul wrote some of his letters to this exact thing. They had this idea that the spirit was good, so you protect the spirit, but the flesh is evil. But it really didn't matter what you did in the flesh because that really didn't have anything to do with the spirit. And so you could just do whatever you wanted to with the flesh. What does that, what, what does Paul teach about that? What's Jesus saying here? Listen, what you do in the flesh affects the spirit. And what the spirit, if it's truly resident in your life, ought to affect the things you do in the flesh. So they, are, again, were following this false teaching. 
And they weren't doing anything about it. They were tolerating it. That's a big word in our culture, isn't it? You ever notice that some of the people that cry the most about the fact that you're not tolerant are very intolerant of you? In our culture, you know, it's basically the Christians are the ones that are being attacked by folks who say we need to be more tolerant. Well, Jesus says to them, you've tolerated this woman, Jezebel. One of the things that struck me in Jerusalem, there is a Holocaust museum there. Right at the beginning of the Holocaust museum. And it takes hours, truly, to walk through and see everything. In fact, it's almost impossible to see everything. But one of the things I noticed the first time I ever went there was a quote at the very beginning of the Holocaust Museum that said, don't judge a nation by only what it does. Judge a nation by what it tolerates. Folks, I say our churches will be judged not just by what they do, because the first two churches were doing some good things, but they were tolerating evil sin in the church. Wickedness in the church. And he says even to the last church, word of rebuke to them. In fact, he goes on to say, hey, I gave Jezebel time to repent. She doesn't want to repent. So he says to the church, repent. And then the church at Sardis, he says to them, you have a name that you're alive? In other words, your reputation is that you're alive. The reputation of this church is that is a happening place. But Jesus rebukes them and says, truly, you are dead. How wrong they were to think they were alive, and yet they were dead. Can, can I just give you a few signs of a dead church? I, I started writing these. I could have written a dozen for the sake of time. I'm just going to give you a few. One, churches that are content to rest on past successes. Kind of this attitude, we've arrived. For some churches, it's when they build a new building. I've watched it happen. There's some churches that spend like two or three years just kind of patting themselves on the back. Look at this place. We've arrived. Or maybe they finally hit some benchmark of a number. You know, we got 300 in service now or 500 or 1,000, whatever it is. We've arrived. We must be doing something right. But it could be a dead church. Could a church that has 1,000 people on Sunday morning be a dead church? Yes. Another thing, you're more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality. Literally, form over substance. And as long as it looks good, it doesn't matter that it's dry as dust and empty, just so it looks good, just so the appearances are kept. You're more concerned with spiritual things than with spiritual things. Doesn't our new million-dollar pipe organ look good? I heard a preacher say this one time, why would we spend a million dollars on a pipe organ to worship a homeless man? Think about it. Jesus who said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And yet, we'll build these million dollar facilities to worship him. And listen, if you've got a church with a million dollar facility and you're worshiping Jesus, praise God. But there's a lot of churches that have basically become mausoleums and museums. They're dead. But they look good on the outside. You're more concerned with social issues rather than people's hearts that need the gospel. Do we need to feed the hungry? Absolutely. Do we need to, to clothe those who have no clothing? Absolutely. But are we sharing the gospel with them? You're more concerned with what men think than what God said. Last, you lose the conviction that the word of God is true, reliable, and the final authority. 
had a conversation with somebody about something that was going on in their church, and I was trying to stay out of the conversation. They finally looked at me and said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think what you're talking about doing is not biblical. And they looked at me and said, oh, we know it's not biblical, but it's practical. When you get to the place where practical trumps biblical, you're heading towards death as a church. Because, again, you can put on the show. The church at Ephesus was putting on the show. They had like five things Jesus commends them about, but they had left their first love. Church at Laodicea, Jesus says, I'm standing at the door knocking. You're having church, but I'm not a part of it. So what a stinging rebuke. What do you do if you're in a dead church? Well, you either do something to change it or get out of there. Because if you stay close to decaying flesh for very long, what's going to happen to your flesh? It'll start decaying. So be careful. Listen, if God's convicting you, if we got some things in our church we need to address, then address them. Don't let sin reign and do nothing about it. Or find a place where the word of God is preached and it is alive. We'll close with just the words of warning. And it amazes me. We saw this in the first church. We see this again here. Jesus says, repent or else. What does the word repent means? It means to turn. It means to have a change of mind or a change of direction. It means you were heading this way and you have turned. And Jesus says, you need to repent or else. Anybody lived with a dad or a mom that said something like that? If you don't clean up your room, or else. Or you better clean up your room, or else. You know, I did. I, I grew up with a dad that would say, or else. And I never asked him, or else what? I never had him fill in the rest of my And he never said, or else. Because I knew what was coming if I didn't do what he told me to do. You know, I didn't ever say, okay, dad, what are my options? Or else what? Repent or else. And here's what Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And folks, I don't even think this is a reference to the second coming. I think this is a reference to imminent judgment. Because if you take a step back into history and look at these churches, all seven of these churches are now in modern day Turkey. You know that the population of Turkey, I think it's 75 million people. There's about 100,000 Christians. Less than 1%, in fact, far less than 1% of the nation now claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And time after time, Jesus says to these churches, repent. In fact, the first church, he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And you think, okay, we've got to give up a candlestick. What's the big deal about that? The lampstand was the church. Basically, what Jesus says is, if you don't repent, I want to just take your church, sit it on a shelf over here because it's ineffective. And I'll either have to bring somebody else in there or there won't be a witness for God in this place. So Jesus says, repent or else. Church, that's a strong word to the church. And I would say that it's the word God has for the church in America of today. If God has convicted you about things in your church, the answer is repent. And really, that's good news. You know why it's good news? Because there's still a chance. God's still opening up an opportunity for mercy. Because if I was God, I'd do it different. The letter, the letter from me would have said, you're tolerating this woman Jezebel or you're teaching the teachings of Balaam or the, the teachings of some of these other false teachers. Poof, you're gone. Aren't you glad I'm not God? Because if I was God, I wouldn't be here either. God's a God of mercy and he says to these churches, repent. That's the reason he writes the letters. To say to them, here's what's going right. 
Here's what's going wrong. And you're headed down a path towards destruction. You need to get off that path. And turn back to me. Or else I'm coming quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. What is he saying? I'm going to take the word of God and apply it. Because it is the word of truth. And I will apply it. In fact, he says about Jezebel. Those who, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. Literally the word means couch. Or a place to recline. Basically saying where she's been committing these immoral acts. I'm going to make her sick there. And the people that have been committing the immoral acts with them. If they don't repent. I'm going to kill them. In fact, when he says, I'm going to kill her children with pestilence, the word pestilence literally means death. I'm going to kill them with death. (laughs) That's pretty descriptive. He's not talking about her physical, biological children. He's talking about her followers. The people that have followed her and not repented are going to face my judgment. He says, I searched the minds and the hearts. I'm so glad that that's true about God. God doesn't just judge us on the outside, the way we look everybody else but he knows our motives he knows the mind he knows the heart and he says if you do not wake up you need to wake up if you don't wake up i'm coming like a thief and you won't know what hour i'm coming that may be a reference to the second coming it may be a reference to more imminent judgment but we know what did jesus say about his coming again i'm coming like a thief If the household owner had known what time the thief was coming, he'd been waiting on him at the door. So what's Jesus saying? Be at the door waiting. Wake up. Be on the alert. And he says that specifically to this church in Sardis who lived in a city who had slept through two invasions. Why had they slept through the invasion? They thought everything was okay. We're on such a high hill, nobody can attack us. You know the same thing can happen in a church? Churches can think, things are going good. We don't need to wake up. Everything's fine. And individually sometimes we can think, you know, I'm doing pretty good. In fact, here's the way some people kind of view it. Yeah, I'm doing more good stuff than bad stuff. It's not the way God operates. You don't get to heaven someday and God says, well, I've taken account. And it seems like your assets outweigh your liabilities. Doesn't work that way. It's all going to be about, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Because one day we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. As you think about the word to the church, I don't want it just to be a history lesson. I don't want it just to be notes on a page about a church that existed close to 2,000 years ago. But what's God saying to us this morning? So let me be pointed. Are, Are there some things in your heart personally? Where God's saying, you need to wake up. You're, you're getting hammered in this area and you've just kind of gotten used to it. Maybe it's just one of your favorite sins and you're just kind of used to it. Father, would you show us right now? God, if there's anything in our life that's displeasing to you. And God, I thank you for the grace you offer. I thank you for mercy to repent. So God, I call us today. If there's anything that you're showing us that we need to turn from, God, I pray today we'd repent. And God, especially this day and age, the church in America, would we be truly a lighthouse to the community that is truly dark and perverse? 
God, could this, would this still be a place, this place, and churches represented across this auditorium? Would it be a lighthouse in a community where people who are desperate for hope could come and could meet the living God and have a relationship with Jesus Christ that lasts forever? God, touch our hearts this morning in Jesus' name.